Thank you, Tony. Well, let's keep that reading open, shall we? And let's pray as we look at that and get into this book of God's Word together. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you that you are God that loves and chooses, but also that speaks and reveals. And we pray that our hearts may be soft and open this morning and our lives transformed by your gospel. In Jesus' name, amen. Over the last couple of weeks, two things have got me thinking about this important theme in this letter of relationships and mutual Christian encouragement. One was... Just before Christmas, Karen and I had a letter from someone that we hadn't seen since we were at college. Uh, We'd sought to befriend her and look after her when she came to college. We sought to share the gospel with her. And she'd kind of shown some interest and made some response at that time. But she wrote to say that she'd come up to college really very bruised and battered about God and faith and church from past experience and very negative. But something in our friendship and our warmth and our sharing the love of Jesus with her had begun to soften her heart and turn her around. And uh, after college, she then later met a very strong Christian man. They married, and she was writing because the pastor of the church they now attend had said it would be a good thing to write and thank someone who had helped you to find faith, even if it was many years before. So she wrote and thanked us. The second thing was that over New Year, we had the friends of one of our children to stay for a couple of days, and all of them, um, in God's grace, are keen Christians, and it's just clear watching them relate to each other that they knew each other very well, either from college or from the summer camp they do, and we were struck by the way this, this little group of Christians, both overtly and just in the way they were, the, the relationships with each other were constantly encouraging, spurring, encouraging each other to follow Jesus more. And that's one of the big themes, maybe the big theme of this letter, Thessalonians. How we can spur each other on, help each other to live to please God. Now, the letter is to people in a place called Thessalonica. And Thessalonica, as you'll see on the map, is a place in modern-day Greece. It was then the district of Macedonia. And as the red arrows show us on the map there, Paul, the apostle, and his companions came there from a place called Troas in modern-day Turkey across the sea. And they came in response to a vision, a man of Macedonia calling them from Asia Minor, Turkey, to cross the Aegean Sea and bring the gospel to what we call Europe. Thessalonica is close to the coast. It has good road links to other regional cities. may sound a bit like a city you know. He has good relationships with the government, but a very independent spirit. It's in a kind of provincial region. It's relatively free from crime, peace-loving, large numbers of immigrants with either civic or business roles, surrounded by fertile, beautiful countryside, a proud but rather uncompetitive sporting tradition, So living in Thessalonica then really was a bit like living in Norwich today. It was just a bit warmer. And the team, when they got to Thessalonica, they shared the gospel there with Jews in the synagogue and also with Gentiles. And they quickly got into trouble of doing so. If you read Acts 17, where this story is told, the Jews became jealous of Paul and his companions, who, as they saw it, were snatching people from the synagogue to join their new Christian church. 
They stirred up a mob claiming that the apostles were undermining the Roman emperor by talking about another king called Jesus. Paul's host, Jason, was arrested and he was bailed on condition that Paul and his companions left the city. And they were smuggled off at night and they head off down the motorway to other cities like uh, Athens and Corinth, or in our day it would be kind of Ipswich and Cambridge, to go and share the gospel there. So this letter arises from these two events in Acts 17. The birth of a new church in Thessalonica, but then the vulnerability of that young church because their guides, their spiritual parents, have been forced to leave them pretty much as orphans almost immediately. And Paul is wondering as he travels off down the road, how are they going to do? Will they keep going? Or in the face of the opposition they're facing, will their faith begin to crumble? So he sends Timothy back to visit Thessalonica and come back and report how they're doing. And Timothy arrives to say, good news, Paul. They are strong in faith. They're still a healthy church. And Paul writes our letter to say, this is a healthy church. This Thessalonian church is still going strong in faith. So he says in verse 1 of our letter, now our reading, he's writing to a church who are in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So not just the church in Thessalonica physically, but spiritually, their real home is in God. They're secure in him and in the Lord Jesus Christ. And he wishes them not just goodwill, but grace. Strong Christian words, grace and peace. Then we come to verses 2 to 10, which are really the prologue to the letter. They set up the message of the whole book. And if you're in a small group, you'll begin to dig into this this week in your study. He's encouraging them in what he says, thanking God for their faith, that it's strong, but also positively reinforcing their good behavior by spurring them on to more of the same. More faith, more hope, more love. And verses 2 to 10 really break into two sections, verses 2 to 5, and then verse 6 to 10. The English translations break it differently, but the break really is between 5 and 6. So 2 to 5, the heading here is gospel conviction. The evidence that the work of the gospel in this church is genuine is there, he says in verse 3. We remember before our God and Father... Your work produced by faith, your labor produced by love, and your endurance, as we've just seen, they're still going, inspired by hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. There's those three Christian virtues, faith and love and hope, and the evidence, the the things that spring from them, the work from faith, the labor from love, the endurance from hope. Those are going to be big themes of the letter. Faith is the big theme, really, of chapters 2 and 3. And then love is the big theme of the first part of chapter 4, 1 to 11. And then hope is the big theme from chapter 5, verse 12 onwards. He says that you are chosen and beloved, loved by God. 
Um, difficult idea being chosen. It does sound exclusive, doesn't it? Why us? Why not others? It's not really about that. It's really the idea that God has chosen us when we didn't deserve it. It's the idea that he's chosen us from his love, not our merit that matters. And he's chosen us in order that as God's people, we might share his love with others too. But the real focus here, as I say, is on the the true, the genuine faith and hope and love that's been planted in this young church, however vulnerable they may look, and the impact that that's going to have upon them and others, as we'll see. And where has that genuine faith come from? If you're here this morning thinking, oh, I wonder how genuine my faith is, actually. Or if I'm vulnerable, how, how do I know if my faith is really on a strong foundation? Or if our children at university or something are wondering, how will they keep going? How do we know what builds a strong faith? Well, Paul then says, this is the cause or the, the origin, the root of a strong, genuine Christian church. And it's these two things. The first thing is the message. Verse 5, he says, Our gospel came to you, not simply with words, or not simply as, as word, but with power, with the Holy Spirit, and with deep conviction. The gospel, that's the good news, is the literal translation, the message about Jesus. We know from Acts, Paul shared this wherever he went, how Jesus was God's son, He came to die for our sins and rise again. He's coming again, and he fulfills the Old Testament hope of a Messiah, a king. So his message was very clear and powerful, but actually the focus is on the manner of the messengers, how our gospel came to you not only as word, but with power, the spirit, and deep conviction. The manner of the messenger matters as much as the message itself, it seems. He probably means by that word conviction, deep conviction, the conviction of the preachers. You know what it's like when, when someone's talking? I mean, traffic doesn't happen from the front here at Holy Trinity, but someone's talking, you think, they don't really believe what they're saying at all. Or they're just not passionate at all about it. As opposed to when a message is, is proclaimed by someone that clearly means and feels deeply in earnest about what they're saying. That really matters that we hear and understand and receive this stuff. That's probably what it means by coming with deep conviction. We were confident, bold about what we said, he says. And came with power in the Holy Spirit. Again, power here. The apostles did perform miracles as they went round planting churches. But the word here is a different word. It probably simply means... Um, that their, their manner was powerful and full of God's spirit. Something in the way that they were communicating, God used to convince the hearers. It's quite common today, isn't it, to hear people say that churches nowadays need to move on from this kind of thing of, you know, message-based ministry. It should all, all be about uh, more modern ways of communicating and so on. And there's, obviously there's value in that. But isn't it interesting in the Bible that it's always through the message and the messengers that God changes lives? The message and the messenger. The message and the manner. Years ago, I prayed for a member of my family to find Christ. 
um, you know, shared the gospel with him, but nothing much really happened. Um, and then a few months later, he moved to London, and I rang after a few weeks and said, how's it going in London? And he said, well, the Bible studies are great. And I kind of fell over, really, and I, I picked up the phone, and I, I said, what? And he said, well, I moved into this flat, and the other two in the flat happened to be strong Christians, and they took me to their church and to their Bible studies. And we read the Gospels, and I, I've become a Christian. And he said, as, as I just read the passage each week, and as people discussed it with me, I was shown Christ in a way I'd not seen him before. He began to become real to me. The message and the manner of those that shared it convinced him. Great connection here, isn't there, to us today, when we think faith is all about an inner feeling. Clearly faith involves feelings. But it can sound just very romantic to say that we're doing what feels right to us. We're following our heart. What matters, people say, is the journey, not the destination. But actually, Paul is saying, real spiritual power, life change lies in the message, the gospel about Jesus, and the conviction of those who share it. That's what changes people. I wonder if you're praying for someone that you know to have faith, to find Jesus. Whether you and I just just need that extra conviction, don't we? That this is a powerful message. As we share it with love and prayer and conviction, God will use to bring them to him. So we need gospel conviction. The gospel given to us as a way to live. To live a new life. To live leaving the past behind. Following Jesus and looking to his return in the future. But we also need the second thing, which is gospel conversion. This is in verses 6 to 10. The focus turns here, really, from the messengers, the preachers, to the church members, the Thessalonians, or us. Verse 6, he says, You became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you welcomed the message in the midst of severe suffering with the joy given by the Holy Spirit. Here's a great reminder that we shouldn't disconnect what we believe, the gospel, the message, from how we live, how we behave. You have to keep these together, belief and behavior. It's it's right to emphasize what we think, because that's what generates how we live. But we mustn't allow the gospel to be separate, not to transform also our attitudes, our relationships. A mind shaped by Christ will result in a life shaped by Christ. You became imitators of us and of the Lord, he says, particularly in your joy and suffering. That's real gospel conversion. These Thessalonians understood that following Christ meant leaving their old social worldview behind, their pagan Thessalonian godless worldview, and choosing instead to be loyal now to Christ and to his people. A whole new way of life. Even if that meant sharing the experience of Christ and the apostles of suffering for Jesus. 
and remaining joyful in doing so. He says, you became a model to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia, which, can I say, all over East Anglia. He says, the Lord's message rang out from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, your faith in God has become known everywhere. And therefore, we don't need to say anything about it, for they themselves report what kind of reception you gave us. So he, he gets to Corinth, and they say, oh, no, no, we know all about Jesus, because we heard about what he did in Thessalonica. The message is, is traveling down all these motorways ahead of Paul. When the Richard's Post here was advertised a year or so ago, the bishop described his vision for Holy Trinity that we should be a flagship of the Spirit in this city. It's, it's a nice phrase, isn't it? Paul is using a, a kind of similar phrase here to describe the impact of the Thessalonian church. He says, The Lord's message rang out from you across the whole region. He's saying, isn't he, it's not the smart buildings and superb marketing of the church that are the model. It's the lifestyle, the model lifestyle, and also the the missional energy. If you read Acts, it's quite clear. A number of these church members became very active early on in propagating the good news of Jesus in their city, but also beyond, helping Paul traveling and sharing So the church sounds like a trumpet. That's the idea here. It rings out this message. It's unnecessary for churches in other places almost to have to mention Jesus in their city because everyone's heard about him already. Isn't that a great, great picture? What a great church. What a great vision. And the heart of the lifestyle, the model lifestyle that touches the world around is summarized in the last two verses, 9 and 10. There are three core things that Christians do here. This is a definition of Christian lifestyle. First one, turn from idols. You see, gospel conversion is not just a change of mind, it is a change of life. Not just turning to God, but turning away from idols. Probably means that many of the Thessalonian church were from a Gentile, a pagan background. Uh, Thessalonica was full of pagan religious shrines and worship. And people are now saying, no, I don't follow that stuff, now I follow Jesus. First reminds us that many modern idols are also around in our city. May not be literally shrines, but the, the gods of money and family and pleasure and power that draw us away from God. So if you're a follower of Christ, you can, I'm sure, think of at least one idol that because you now follow Christ, you have left behind. Second thing is serving God. The rest of the letter expands on what that means, putting God first in life, um, supporting the church financially, volunteering to serve in the church, loving and witnessing patiently to those in our community around us, And again, you can think of a way that you're already serving God, and you can maybe think of new ones that you could this year. And then thirdly, waiting, turning, serving, and waiting for the Son from heaven. We await the day Christ returns in glory to punish sin and evil, to right all wrongs, to rescue us from death. 
and through his death and life to bring us into his new creation. That waiting, though, it kind of sounds like a passive thing, doesn't it? Waiting around. Uh, that's not really the sense. It's, it's not passive. It's, as we'll see in the letter, it's working and watching for Christ's return. Rather like a city under siege, desperately hanging on with all the fibres in its being until a friendly army comes to relieve it and rescue it. Or like Norwich City, desperately holding on to a nil-nil draw against a better team, waiting for the referee's whistle. It's that kind of waiting for Christ's return, the thing that we long for. Gospel conviction goes with gospel conversion, and that's what conversion looks like. Just a a thought as I sort of wrap this up now. One is that um, we need both of these things together. Just having gospel conviction without conversion or the other way around is not at all healthy. Gospel conviction without converted lifestyle is really what we call hypocrisy, saying we believe in Jesus but actually not living it out, no evidence, no faith and hope and love, no turning to God, no serving God in our lives, all talk and no walk. It's the kind of civic, formal, lifeless religion that was condemned way back in the kind of Victorian days, but is still very much around today. But the other way around is also dangerous, having gospel lifestyle, behavior, or the attempt at it, without gospel conviction, without real gospel. That's, I guess we call that moralism or legalism. Um, seeking to please God without first finding Jesus. Like the apocryphal rabbis who were so afraid of sexual temptation that they would close their eyes every time a woman walked by and wouldn't open them again until they're absolutely sure she was completely out of sight even to the point where they would walk into door frames and trees. And they were called the, ble- the bleeding and bruised rabbis. Apparently this is true. That's, isn't it, that's gospel, attempt at gospel lifestyle without gospel conviction. Trying to live it without the good news from which the life comes. So, gospel conviction that leads to gospel conversion. That's the sign of this wonderful, healthy church. And wouldn't that be a great vision for this church too? Wouldn't it be amazing if we could become a flagship of the Spirit in this city and beyond, multiplying faith and hope and love through a culture of mutual gospel encouragement? That's what we're going to see in this letter. It's all about how we spur each other on reminding each other of the good news, reminding each other of the lifestyle that we're called to, that we might become a church multiplying Christian faith. And it could be that you could start that today. It could be that over coffee today, you could have a conversation with someone, welcome a new person, ask someone how they're looking to serve God this year. Let's spur each other on. It could be in your small group. It could be that you reach out this week at work to someone. And ask them if maybe they... Have they ever read one of the Gospels about the original Jesus? Who knows how the sounding of the Gospel can multiply and become loud through our church this year. And therefore in our community and our city 
and our region. Let's pray. Let's pray together. So, Heavenly Father, we thank you for the good news of Jesus. We thank you for the conviction with which he came to us as your son and the commitment through which he died and rose for us. We thank you that we remember that conviction in our communion service now. We pray that as we remember his death and life, that good news may transform us afresh And we pray that our lives and our words may lead to his name being trumpeted loud and clear across this community, this city, this region. To his glory we pray. Amen.